0: I'm Kyle Salmon.
1: And I'm Corey Astle.
0: Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 54, we read Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business by Neil Postman, published in 1985.
1: All right. So before we get started, we just wanted to mention this pretty cool thing that's happened to us. That is Feedspot, which is a blog website that ranks podcasts in different niche areas well, we've been rated in the top 10 of conservative political podcasts that you must follow in 2020. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And hopefully people read that and pick up on us. And I think uh, what's even cooler, I think, is on this list. There's a lot of national shows that with kind of famous hosts that have either had a radio talk show for a long time or have their own you know, TV series or something like that. So kind of cool. Yeah,
0: it's a good, good company to be in.
1: So we want to thank Feedspot for highlighting us, and hopefully uh, you guys also can share with your friends and we can expand the podcast. One other th- note that I wanted to mention, we want to apologize for the poor audio quality of our last episode. We had some technical difficulties. Please don't hold against us against us, and hopefully this one's better. So, all right, on to the book. Neil Postman was born in 1931 into a Yiddish-speaking family in New York City. He received an undergraduate degree from the State University of New York at Fredonia and went on to earn a Doctor of education in 1958 from Teachers College at Columbia University. He taught at New York University for most of his career. Postman made contributions to the discipline of media studies, the critical analysis of technology, and the philosophy of education. He is best known for his social critique of mass communication especially television's effects on the developing minds of children. He died in 2003. So in Amusing Ourselves to Death, Postman argues that public discourse in America has dissolved into the art of show business. No, that can't be true. (laughs) In the 18th and 19th century America, the printed word reigned supreme, and Postman believes that our politics and culture were much better for it. On the other hand, the advent of television has exchanged words for images and soundbites and had a corrosive effect on serious discourse. Remember, this was published in 1985, so obviously he doesn't even pick up on the social media uh, internet age. Uh, but he says, our politics, religion, news, athletics, education, and commerce have been transformed into congenial adjuncts of show business. The result is we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. So this book, he says, is an inquiry into and a lamentation about the decline of the age of typography, which is to say the age of the written word and the ascendancy of the age of television and really the age of uh, electronic media. This change, he says, has dramatically and irreversibly shifted the content and meaning of public discourse since two media so vastly different cannot accommodate the same ideas. As the influence of print wanes, the content of politics, religion, and education must be recast in terms that are most suitable for television. And he he uses this great example right off the bat about smoke signals. So, you know, before the telegraph, before the written word, before letters, he says, you know, cultures with smoke signals didn't have news alerts, let's say, or news of the day is what he calls Mm. it. So you have to have a communication medium in order to create the form and smoke signals just didn't have it. But with each successive step, you know, he says all culture is a conversation conducted in a variety of symbolic modes. And our attention here is on how forms of public discourse regulate and even dictate what kind of content can issue from such forms, which I found to be an incredible insight because yeah, smoke signals, you can't have a deep philosophical conversation like you can in the written word and on TV or on, tw- in, on Twitter, you know, 280 characters, you can't have the type of conversation you can have uh, in person or in written word. And that really does kind of dictate not only what information, the shape of information, but also how we receive it and how we understand it.
0: Yeah. And how we expect it even. I mean, you know, we, he talks about the idea of news of the day. Which seems like a natural concept. Everybody, I mean, you and I grew up before social media, but the idea of a daily newspaper coming to the house is not that you know that seems ordinary. You know, it seems uh, almost old timey these days. You know, that they there would be a daily digest of what's going on in the world, what's going on in the community. You got your sports and weather. You know, it's all it's all right there. And that seems kind of normal, but when you even that is is uh, is something that's created by the medium itself you know by by the idea that when when newspapers got big it's like all right we've got the ability to publish this thing once a day and get it to everybody's doorstep so that means now news is a daily thing there's daily news i mean that one of the papers here in philadelphia was called the daily news is called they're, they're still around so it's you know it's just this idea and then of course television takes that into you know you've got your morning news your nightly news you know you your your late night news I hadn't really considered until I read this, how much it, it, that medium changes our brains expectation of when news happens. And of course, like you said, he, this is before Twitter and Facebook, but now, I mean, now if something's happening, I do look at Twitter and I'm like, Hey, why is no one talking about this yet? Well, it just happened, you know? (laughs) And those who are talking about it usually don't know what they're talking about yet because it just happened. You know, there's no time to think and reflect the way even a, even a uh, nightly news anchor or a, uh, a daily news writer would have a few minutes to reflect. Now we want that, like, instant hit. Like, oh, what's what's going on? What does it mean? Let's look. You know, oh, somebody tweeting about it a minute ago. I'm sure he knows what he's talking about somehow. Yeah, it's, 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 it's wild how much this book gets at our current moment, even before the current moment. He was seeing these trends. I think before anyone else or before anyone else that I've read.
1: Yeah. And to boot, he says, uh, in a later chapter for the first time in history, people are faced with the p- problem of information glut because the whole world has become the context for news. We are sent information with an- which answers no question we have asked, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, that's even worse now, right? Because mm-hmm. you're right. If something happens, then we go to Twitter or we go to 24 hour cable news and want some instant gratification or, you know, information about it. But it's also the case that 99.9% of the time, nothing's really happening. So they have to fill that. And we're going to call that news, you know, got to talk about something, you know, we got to, we got to focus and, and navel gaze at something, you know, at all hours of the day. Hmm. And obviously you couldn't do that with, with smoke signals. You can't even do that with, with writing because, well he'll argue and we'll talk about this in a minute but it you know there's more thought involved but he says to to the point you made the medium is the metaphor from painting to hieroglyphs to the alphabet to television each medium makes possible a unique form of discourse by providing a new orientation for thought expression or sensibility i mean just think of the the difference between hieroglyphs and essays in written form, you know, or books. I mean, it's night and day. And then the difference between books and television, and even the difference between television and social media. I mean, they have some similarities and some of it carries, carries across, but it just really changes our ability to express and to receive. He says, our media metaphors classify the world for us, sequence it, frame it, enlarge it, reduce it, color it, argue a case for what the world is like, and he thinks that writing makes it possible and convenient to subject thought to a continuous and concentrated scrutiny, while, you know, a television does not. But to the, to this point about how metaphors classify the world and how, how, how media classifies the world for us, I mean, isn't that so true? Because I've really noticed this just with the, the protests and riots, because I'll use a to me, what was one of the most profound examples of disconnect that I've ever seen in my life. But you had this CNN reporter who was who was trying to convince us how peaceful the, this particular protest was. I can't remember which city. Might have been your Philly. I'm not sure. But trying to, who was describing how peaceful it was. And right behind him was a burning building.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, you and I have been talking about this offline, but you know, I think this whole episode, the co- the combination of the coronavirus as well as the protests has really severely decreased my, at least my trust in, uh, in media outlets. And partially because, you know what t- Twitter allows us to do in our phones, smartphones, is to live stream everything. So you don't actually need a reporter to describe the scene for you because you're watching it. Now, those also can be misleading and and all that but when the when the protest was heaviest uh, a couple weeks ago a w- week and a half ago or so i mean you're getting video non-stop on your twitter feed and so you're seeing all different angles of all these different cities and that really just enlarges it. it's, it's 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 the the medium really does provide a, a much different picture and understanding in the way that we conceptualize and and receive i don't know if you had a similar experience but
0: yeah and, and i was also thinking about this information glut that he talks about which is even no, so much more so today you know in 1985 there were there a handful of television stations in your area maybe one or two local newspapers you know now it's you can get everything from everywhere and i think what what it also does is i mean part of the amusement you know theme that he puts out here is that you know we want to be entertained by news even if we don't yeah. admit that and that so so what do we do when there's a ton of different information out there we, we look at the ones that entertain us the most. That is to say we look at the ones that confirm our biases or, you know, right. say what we want to hear. Things you know, you watch news that makes you feel good or even makes you feel angry in a way you want to feel angry. You know, angry at the people you don't <laughs> like. Yeah. Not angry at the people you do like. You know, not making you think about, Oh, maybe this, you know, maybe this thing I believe is not true because look at this what's going on. Maybe this contradicts something. Now we have the choice. We can we can be told exactly what we want to hear. And it's really easy to get that. You don't have to search out alternative newspapers or weird public access shows. It's all right there, you know, right next to the news that tells mm-hmm. us the opposite. So I, I think that, and that's a, this amusement aspect. Like He he talks about how television makes everything amusement. You know, that everything has to be entertaining to be on TV mm-hmm. or else you're going to turn it off. And I I guess I kind of knew that, but I didn't... I never really thought about it because we grew up in the TV era. You know, everything, if it doesn't sell ads, it's not going to be on TV, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I guess now the, the outgrowth of that in a, in a more shattered social media age is if it doesn't draw clicks, it's not going to get out there. And they know exactly what draws clicks from different segments of the population. And each person is talking to only his own audience and not, a, not really in a broader audience.
1: And I mean, that's just a feature of contemporary life because, you know, going back to his medium as metaphor, how many people, how many choices did you have to read hieroglyphics? You know, I mean, there's probably like three guys who could do it or during medieval times, you had 20 monks spend five years to rewrite the Bible or something, but the copy of the Bible, I mean, where then you move into printed word and, and, you know, papers are hard to come by and, Even with a printing press, it's expensive and hard to come by where now there's it's just such a massive tidal wave of choices. And so then that also changes them. He on the show business point, he says entertainment is the mode of discourse on television. No matter what is depicted or from what point of view, the overarching presumption is that it is there for our amusement and pleasure. News is not to be taken seriously. It's all fun. And how do we know? The good looks and the amiability of the cast, their pleasant banter, the exciting music that opens and closes the show.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> a new show is a format for entertainment, not for television. And I mean, of course, that's even more so with, with cable news. And, you know, like, dun- 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 and, yeah. and the Sunday shows and celebrity newscasters and, you know, all news programs begin, end, and are somewhere in between, punctuated with music. He spends like half a chapter talking about the music and how absurd it is that uh, that we're having that it even represents rational discourse when when it's punctuated by by music. And then, even more funny, I really laughed at this. He's like, and viewers know, but you know, to to your point about uh, advertising, viewers know that no matter how grave any fragment of news may appear. It will shortly be followed by a series of commercials that will instantly diffuse the import of the news and render it largely banal. We are no longer struck dumb by a newscaster reporting that a nuclear war is inevitable. And then goes on to say that we will be right back after this word from Burger King. (laughs) 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a dissonance in that that we ignore and it's it's kind of weird, but yeah. I mean, like why, why are newscasters attractive people? It doesn't, doesn't really have any import on the news, except that it makes, you know, we don't like to look at ugly people. So they put good looking people on the news (laughs) to make it more believable somehow, or at least to make us pay attention. And he talks about like the old, even before the printed word in this, in a society built on like an oral culture. We had different, you know, like the ancient Greeks, he says, judged truth differently. A lot of it was, was wrapped up in rhetoric. And if a guy was a good rhetorician, gave a great speech, you know, and and, and really drove home his point, that people would find that more true, you know, if the way it was being presented. And then, you know, after widespread literacy, we get into a situation like 19th century America, where arguments are being made. And I mean, there are there were still speeches, but they were speeches of a. Uh, he he says that it was sort of it's a written culture being spoken out loud. Like he talks about the Lincoln Douglas debates were not, they weren't soundbite culture like today. And they weren't even really the same as the old rhetoric of preliterate civilizations. They were, this was a written culture spoken out loud sometimes, but usually people didn't hear those debates in person. Usually they read them in the newspaper or in a pamphlet that was printed up by one, you know, campaign or issue group or whatever, you know, the equivalent was in those days. So, you know, Lincoln and Douglas could both be ugly guys making good points, you know, and mm-hmm. and it didn't it didn't matter, you know, and people goofed on the way Lincoln looked all the time, but he was, we still we remember him as one of the great thinkers of his age, because, you know, he didn't have to be on TV, you know, his stuff was going out in the papers, going out over the telegraph, You you could have the time to analyze the words without analyzing the way in which they were presented, and then television... Takes us back almost to a pre-literate level where we're, we're we're getting a vibe off of it. We're getting, Mm -hmm. you know, and not, you know, on TV you can't look back and be like, wait, what didn't he say five paragraphs ago? I don't know if that makes sense with what's being said now. Because on TV it's 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 gone. You know, I mean, you can you can rewind these days with your DVRs, but no one does. You know, it's all about like, oh yeah, that was a good speech. That made it that made me feel good, or or it made me feel angry, you know, or whatever. And it there's no there's not the introspection because it's. I think Postman would say we're, we're a post-writing culture. Now we're back to a, an oral culture almost.
1: Right, and so what is, what is it, what's his broader argument here about why print is so much better? Well, he says that discourse in America was different under the printing press from what it is now because it was more coherent, more serious, and rational while under television it has become shriveled and absurd. He says, there's a much stronger belief in the authenticity of written over spoken word the written word endures, the spoken word disappears. And that is why writing is closer to the truth than speaking. And in a print culture, as you said, this the speaking and the oratory was much more ordered too. He says the process, the writing process encourages rationality. Sequential propositional character of the written word fosters analytic management of knowledge. He says to engage the written word means to follow a line of thought which requires considerable powers of classifying, inference-making, and reasoning. It means to uncover lies, confusions, and overgeneralizations, to detect abuses of logic and common sense. It also means to weigh ideas, to compare assertions, to connect one generalization to to another. And I think we all know this. When we're trying to describe something orally versus when we sit down and say, all right, I'm going to write it out, write out the argument. And, you know, you, you publish in, in, uh, in, in, good magazines and everything. I mean, how much harder is it to sit down and write it out? And, and then you start to realize the holes in your, in your own thinking or in your own mm-hmm. knowledge, you know, you start to realize, well, actually maybe I don't understand that quite as well as I thought, or that seems so much simpler when I was just, just yakking about it versus when I have to actually write it down in print.
0: Oh, for sure. I've I've definitely scrapped pieces that I got halfway through researching and realized uh, I didn't make any sense. If I were on, if I were doing a, a hit on a radio or, or TV, I would never have got to that point. I would have just said my soundbite and moved on because there's no space for introspection. And it, yeah. it's like you you and I are both are lawyers, so we both learned the IRAC way of writing, which is an acronym for issue, rule, application, conclusion. Sometimes they say SIRAC, which you conclusion twice, you put the conclusion first. And I, I still write that way, but that's that's a that's a legacy of a written culture, and it's because lawyers submit arguments on brief. They yeah they write them up and send them into the court, and there are oral arguments, but when you're arguing it, especially at the appellate level, what you're doing is is making a written argument, and that's what the court reads before you get in there, and it's that that is kind of a that's a vestige of that old way of arguing, and it you know contrast that with the sort of uh, trial lawyer we associate with, uh, you know, the, the you know the kind of shady litigator who's like the uh, John Edwards we used to be, you know, where mm-hmm. he's really, he's making an emotional argument to the jury. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, in yeah. a lot of states, juries can't even take notes. So there's no way to really get a handle on what he's saying. This is a pure rhetoric, a pure feeling kind of argument. And you hope there's facts in there and you hope, but sometimes, you know, if, you know, if the other lawyer isn't good, you know he doesn't really make his case well that's that's the old way we, we we interpret that the same way the ancient greeks looked at maybe socrates and somebody arguing with him and said oh i don't you know that socrates wasn't a great speaker maybe is you know maybe it, his argument is not right you know now we read him on paper and they we count him as among the the giants of philosophy but mm-hmm. you know um, i was just th- just thinking about the the print versus word is we see that we see that still in our or my my former profession of the law and it's uh it's such a huge difference and people look at each other differently and you know within different segments of that profession that you know one is just we you know we would those of us who prefer writing would say you know they're just you know spinning yarns trying to prove you know give tearjerker speeches it has nothing to do with right and wrong
1: Mm -hmm.
0: whereas i mean i think they Maybe that's why so many trial lawyers can get into politics is they have the same, it's the same thing. It's just, instead of trying to get a reward from a jury, you're trying to get a vote from a voter and it's, it's made for TV.
1: Yeah. And you know, if you write something down, we know that we have reason to believe that someone's going to come back and pick at it. And, you know, six months from now might read it and think while they're reading and, and kind of pick at it and find holes versus if you're doing your, your quick cable, cable news hit, I mean, everybody just, it's like one in, in one ear out in the other. Was I enraged? Good. That's what I wanted. And, and there's not any self-reflection or, or return and examination of the, of the actual argument. I mean, I think some of us, it drives us crazy that people can easily say things one day and, and yeah, you can record it and and the Google machine uh, has a long memory, but who has time or the patience to go back and watch another, uh, a clip of, you know, something Harry Reid said this time versus last time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or, or, or Trump for that matter, versus you and I, I mean, this whole project is going back at old books and looking and examining and thinking over it. And well, and let's call ourselves out too for, for podcasts, you know, Postman says that when a television show is in process, it is very nearly impermissible to say, let me think about that, or I don't know, or what do you mean when you say? Mm -hmm. This type of discourse not only slows down the tempo of the show, but creates the impression of uncertainty or lack of finish. And it tends to reveal people in the act of thinking, which is boring. (laughs) (laughs) And TV producers figured that out a long time ago. Well, listeners, I hope you don't think it's too boring, but that's the that's the whole, I think that's what podcasts allow for is these long form discussions, more thoughtful. Now, it'd be even more fun if we could have a give and take with you, uh, but at least we have a give and take with each other, Kyle and I. But it's interesting that, you know, podcasts has, has risen up as a, as a niche because in politics, as well as in TV and on radio, people are not going to tune in to there's not too many people tuning into Rush Limbaugh if, if he's sitting around thinking through an issue like, hey, I've been really thinking about this. And, and, I, and what do you think about that? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That's not what's happening. You know, you're, you're as sure as the sun rising about whatever it is you're talking about, even if you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, people want certainty.
0: And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. If you, if you look at the process of writing something and working through an argument, it is not entertaining. You know, it's, it's work. Yeah, no one, no one would want to look at me going through drafts of articles. You know, <laughs> you know printing them out and maybe crossing some stuff. Uh, it's, this is if it were a movie, that would be in a montage and it would be getting over gotten over with quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's boring. It, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> but uh, yelling sound bites past each other—that passes for entertainment. It, you know, it passes for news entertainment. And that's yeah. not—I mean, cable news has a purpose. I think. I mean, I don't mean to just everybody bags on cable news, you know, it's coarsening everything, ruining everything. And yeah, mostly true, but there are occasions when it's, it's useful when you do need that news quickly, you know, when a on election night or, uh, you know, if a, if a war is starting, you know, but it's for, in, for anything thoughtful, I don't bother looking at it. You know, I, I, I'd rather wait until the next day and see if anybody who I, think is intelligent has written something. Yeah. yeah. And that still might be wrong. You know, I mean, I've written stuff that time is not borne out as true, but it was at least a little more than just whatever was on the top of my head. You know, that minute, which is what you get on TV and and even more so on social media. I, I, one thing I wanted to go back to in, in Postman's book is he makes this argument. And I, have heard this mentioned a few times elsewhere recently is um the different kind of dystopias that were predicted in, by george orwell and aldous huxley and the you know, mm-hmm. orwell's 1984 which is the one we talk about more because it was it, it was the more popular book and it's about big brother and about a state that controls everything big brother censors everything and you know squashes descent and they go they the the memory hole that expression i believe comes from 80 1984 where you know the main character his job was to censor old news and make it conform with the current party's ideas so he'd go back and you know make make fake history that vision uh postman contrast with alice huxley's brave new world where there's no big brother oppressing us and telling us what to think they're just feeding us am- amusing junk and, and drugs and letting us just amuse ourselves and not be distracted by the equally terrible government that is running everything. But they're not running everything like in 1984 by throwing you in jail if you disagree. They're just like, yeah, give people enough nonsense, you know, the the equivalent, the, you know, 50s and 60s equivalent of uh, weed and video games. You know, the the universal basic income of its day, you know, in, in, in Huxley's books. You know, just... Distract them with amusing crap and uh, they won't get too riled up about anything we're doing because they're uh, amusing themselves and, you know, they're, they're tuning out on their own. They're not, Mm -hmm. we don't have to censor them because they just, we're just give them enough junk that they don't care, you know, just like, like reality TV is now. Oh, they're going to argue about real housewives of uh, New Jersey or whatever. Fine. Okay. (laughs) Let people argue about that instead of arguing about our government. Mm-hmm. And I, and he, you know, Postman's point was that the, that Huxley got that vision correct, and Orwell didn't. And I, I've heard I've heard people talk about that increasingly in the social media age too. Uh, and those are both great books to read. You know, for often looking to what past writers thought the future would be like is uh, is always a fascinating, you know, endeavor because some of them get it right and some of them get it wrong, but it tells you a lot about their own time and their own personalities is what they think the world's coming to. And, uh, you know, Huxley's brave new world is one that I think hits a lot of the the points that we're living through right now. And I can see why, why postman, if he, he mentions it in the introduction and then I think again, at the end of the book and that's, uh, yeah, this is, this is the, uh, the dystopia that we're actually approaching. Not the,
1: not the big brother one we're more familiar with. Hmm. I thought that was pretty insightful, and it it it's prompted me. I need to go back and read Huxley again. I I, I read it in college, but that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And it's it's time for a review because that was that was really insightful. And obviously, so there's so, so much truth to it today that that people are just numbing themselves with with media and their smartphones and social media, and even let's take politics out of it. Most people are not following politics every second of the day, like, like I am and probably you are, but instead they're playing candy crush or they're, you know, sharing pictures or, you know, following each other's and setting up scenes to make it look like they're the greatest mother in the, in the (laughs) history of the world with their children. And, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) before they go back to slapping them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But this also made me think about the, I mean, isn't this kind of also what, what Russian Intel ops are doing to us right now too is kind of create this distraction. Now I think Huxley and certainly, um, certainly Postman have in mind more like comedy and he calls it a vaudeville act. That's what's distracting us. And I think that's all true, but outrage and anger are just as effective at distracting and, and drawing people's attention away from what, from what matters. And if you got, you know, Russian bots like creating fake news or whatever that, that riles people up and ticks them off and incites these Twitter wars, I mean, isn't it just as effective? And so it's kind of like the Russians read Huxley too. And it's like, well, you know, you, there's the numbing For Americans and capitalism already does that to itself. Why don't we focus mm. on like trying to incite, uh, Anger and rage at, you know, between one another.
0: Yeah. And a lot of these outrage wars also, like you talk about people aren't following politics every second to the extent they are. A lot of what they're following are outrage wars, which is more, which is not politics Mm -hmm. itself, but like political theater, you know, I mean, people who consider themselves political and make a lot of Facebook posts about stuff and forward all these memes around, they're not reading the bills that are proposed in Congress. That is is not entertaining. (laughs) It's important, but it's not entertaining at all. But instead, it's more. Did you see what Trump said? Or did you see what Pelosi said? Oh, you know, yeah. and, you know, take a clip, put it out of context, make a meme about it, <clears throat> write an outrage screed, you know, and it's, they're, they are being political. They're not totally distracted from politics, but it's, it's just political tribalism. It's just, just <laughs> argle bargle and, and, and nonsense that, you know, could just as easily be arguing about the dallas cowboys it's just right (laughs) it's just that you have a new villain instead it doesn't matter you know it's the same way that you know and it's it's just something to be angry about and yeah so we have we have politics talk but it's it's no different than sports talk or entertainment talk it's just yelling at each other over things
1: and it bugs me so bad that i i totally am susceptible to this too i guess it's just the human Monkey mm-hmm. brains, or whatever. Oh yeah, I do <laughs> I'll be just as outraged if I find an article about some liberal arts college off the beaten path that I've never heard of, where 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 kids are, you know, uh, throttling conservatives or something like that. <laughs> uh, and 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 I think that you know when you have hieroglyphs or s- um, smoke signals or even writing, it doesn't create the same availability bias as we have now and what i mean by that is availability bias is sort of a psychological effect where even if something is actually pretty rare if you're if you're seeing it let's say on the news over and over again then it feels like it's happening everywhere Mm -hmm. so a good example the best example of this is uh, kidnappings you know the in america we're at a, a world time low in in kidnappings And especially if it's not like a parent, you know, like a a dad kidnapping his own child, then there's very, very few that happen, you know, in a, in a several year period. But because when it does happen, it's all over the news for weeks and weeks and weeks. It just feels like it's happening all the time and we're under attack, we're under siege. And I think there's real analogy to what's going on uh, with the current situation. Because cable news needs to f- fill every second of 24 hours per day, they've got to, they, they just have to keep playing over and over again, the lot, the plane that, that disappeared in Indonesia or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like planes are, cra- you know, it just, it starts to sink in your mind that planes crash and planes are crashing, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're disappearing. We can't go anywhere. You know, there's thousands, well, maybe not during coronavirus, but in normal times, there's thousands of international flights that are you know going across the atlantic or the pacific and atlantic ocean all the time uh, but one one incident happens and it now it feels like it's just totally dangerous <laughs> yeah i mean I, I, we don't have good brains for large numbers and i th- you know i, I don't think because we never had to
0: until pretty recently you know in, in ancient times you lived in a tribe or you know and then later in like a small town maybe or small you know you, you knew most of the people you you could understand numbers of like a hundred maybe even a thousand, but then it's the same thing with, uh, with budgetary stuff. Like, this bill is going to cost a trillion dollars. Yeah. Billions, well, trillions. Is, is that <laughs> a lot? I don't know. I mean, it, it's so big, like a billion and trillion sounds the same to a lot of people because they're both so huge and, you yeah. know, it, it's hard to get a handle on that. They, I, I think of that example that you gave to uh, often about kidnappings and, and also in just in general, violent crime has been dropping pretty consistently since the sixties. There's been a couple of little minor upticks here and there, but the way people talk, you think, it, you know, the streets are as dangerous as ever they were. And it, yeah. it's not, I mean, it's, it, that's not to say that crime doesn't happen anymore. It certainly does, but it's, we don't, we don't have a good head for what, you know, per capita numbers mean and what, you know, undiluted numbers mean the, you know, the straight numbers of things happening. We live in a huge country, you know, every crime is going to happen every year, but (laughs) getting a handle on how many there are and how many people are here and it's hard. And uh, if you're just getting entertainment style news, they're not going to get into that. You know, they're just, they're going to give you that story. Oh, this person is kidnapped, you know, and it's nationwide manhunt, but they're not going to have somebody say, well, you know, you shouldn't really worry about this because it's exceedingly rare. And there's like a million things that are more likely to happen to you than this. Yeah. No one's entertained by that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're entertained by being scared. Yeah, exactly. And so he says his main argument America is engaged in the world's most ambitious experiment to accommodate itself to the technological distractions made possible by the electric plug. And it's obviously so much more true now than it was in 1985. And he had a really good insight here. All that is required to make it stick. Is a population that devoutly believes in the inevitability of progress. This is something we've talked about many times on the podcast. Mm-hmm. In this sense, all Americans are Marxists. He says, for we believe history is moving us towards some preordained paradise, that tech and, and that technology is the force behind that movement. And I think there's there is some second guessing on that at this point, but as far as like technology being an unalloyed good, alloyed good, you know, just. Uh, but we do have this belief that that we're moving towards closer and closer to utopia. You know that uh, that looting the target in in thirty years will be viewed as the same as Boston Tea Party. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I think yeah. that, uh, that that hu- human progress is. I mean we've seen how thin the veneer of civilization is just in the last few weeks and how quickly things can get out of control. I mean in Seattle they have a an autonomous zone made up of, you know, hippies and antifa. So things can change on a on a dime and when it comes to technology, I mean it's created so many cool stuff, but it's also this stuff is also harming us in many many ways.
0: Yeah, I think that also kind of gets back to the idea of having a hard time with numbers is, you know, people see that the civil rights marches of the sixties did achieve a result, you know, and laws changed and people's behavior changed to some extent. And, you know, things did get better, but then they think every march is going to do that, you know, and they think every protest is going to do that and it's going to change things in the way that they want. And yeah, I think that's that it is essentially the Marxist utopian idea that you know I mean the whole idea of progressivism is that there's a point and we're approaching it like a graph you know and we're getting closer and you know I mean of course we've discussed that before like you said the problem is you don't know the point is whatever I want right now yeah you know and then the the next generation's progressives will say that wasn't the point we're approaching it's a different one you know so there's no there's no limiting principle there's no rational approach to it It's, it's it's a lot about feeling and Wanting to be part of something that changes things and, you know, makes this world more perfect, which I, th- I think a lot of conservatives will just say is a, a futile idea. Mm. You can make things better, but it's, you know, we're still all people. We're still all flawed. Bad things are going to keep happening. But um, I think it, a lot of it, you know, it gets back to, well, oh, this did work a couple of times. Like yeah, it, it did. It, it mostly doesn't work. So and yeah, we don't. <laughs> nobody wants to... Rem- it's like you know, when young guys think about like war and glory, they're they're reliving the stories of the people who lived. You know, they're they're reading the stories of the hero from such and such a war. Because our brains doesn't want don't want to concentrate on all the people who died because they don't their yeah. stories aren't out there. They're not interesting. They're not entertaining. Mm-hmm. They're I mean they're clearly important because that does. Happen, but uh, the myths that arise are the ones we focus on. You know, the time that this thing I like worked—that's Boy, that's, that's, yeah, the glory. Yeah. Let's, I'm going right. to do that. You know, and it's good to have you know myths. I mean, even true myths. And I don't mean myths in the sense of fake, but it's. uh Yeah, again, this is a, a we're not good at separating out, you know, that that one from the whole.
1: So, postman doesn't really have remedies for us you know, he, he pretty much is dour from the beginning to the end because he says, you know, Americans will not shut down any part of their technological apparatus. In other words, we're not, we're not turning off the TV. It's that's, we're not, we're not going to go, unless there's some sort of nuclear war where we lose technology or people forget, there's no turning back from our smartphones. You know, the next generation of Twitter will be out there, but it'll still be out there. And he says it's equally unrealistic to expect that even non-trivial modifications to the availability of media will ever be made. And that would be, you know, some sort of, well, they're trying it right now. Like Mark Zuckerberg, I give him credit actually for trying to stand firm. He obviously himself has nothing but disdain for Trump, but is willing to stand up for for that, for that free speech and not, but on the other hand they're also doing their own both twitter and and facebook doing their own editorializing and doing their own editing and pruning of of messages so there there is an attempt i guess to make uh, modifications to the avail- availability of, of of what is there for media but there's no holding that back that that damn it's it is what it is we have the technology we have and it's only going to increase and there's really no turning back so is there actually any answers to, to the problems that, that Postman raises or that many of the ones that we talk about all the time? So it's kind of a downer of the book in that sense. But in some ways it's a little bit refreshing because so many of these books will get to the end and be like, everything is horrible and nothing we can't change anything, but try this idea. That's probably not going to work. He doesn't even go there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Any closing thoughts?
0: No, I think that, I think that nails it. Um, and I, I, the quote at the end of the book here says there's two ways by which the spirit of a culture may be shriveled in the first the orwellian culture becomes becomes a prison in the second the huxleyan culture becomes a burlesque and i think if anything since 1985 we, our culture has become more of a burlesque in, in every sense of the word and uh yeah i wish i wish it closed on a you know, here's three things you can do and it'll turn everything around. But I, 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 appreciate the honesty of saying, yeah, we're not turning off TV. You know, I mean, yeah. we, we're not reducing screen time as we call it in the 21st century. It's, uh, it's here to stay. And, uh, we've just got to try and, uh, understand these forces and resist them where possible. But yeah, like I said, it's kind of a downer. It ends on a low note, but it's, <laughs> it's also a true one.
1: My only thought is, I think Postman, you know, a book like this, we're amusing ourselves to death. In some ways, it felt like, oh, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say the TV sucks. And he does do that. But there was a lot of really good insights just about, about how we understand information and how we ta- how we uh, receive it and understand the world. And so all that was really insightful and good. And so for that reason, and it's a really quick read. So plenty of analogies to the, to today without being, you know, kind of the same old. So I liked it. All Mm -hmm. right. That's it for Postman. Catch us next time.